0: This is Black Talk, where global Black experts mix with local voices from the Black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and Black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-Black racism. Our guest on this episode of Black Talk is the Honorable Kojo Yanka. His long career spans the world of journalism, government, and education. Pojo served as editor of Ghana's most widely circulated newspaper, The Daily Graphic, which led to his appointment as the director of the Ghana Institute of Journalism. In the 1992 Ghanaian parliamentary election, he won the seat for Agona East constituency. In 2001, he established the African University College of Communications. And most recently, he founded the Pan-African Heritage Museum, a multi-million dollar state of the art repository dedicated to showcasing the history, culture and achievements of the Pan-African world. He currently serves as executive chairman of this project. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender, with our guest, the Honorable Kojo Yanka.
1: Kojo, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. So I'll start us off here. Um, Kojo, while I was born in Canada, both of my parents are actually from Ghana. So I often get to hear warm stories about what it was like growing up in this beautiful coastal country. I've had the opportunity to visit as well. And I really, really enjoyed my stay. What a beautiful place. I'd actually like to go back as soon as possible. And I was wondering if you could describe for our listeners what your younger years were like, attending grade school and
2: graduating university over there? No, the 60s uh, were very exciting Yes, for me. I was young, uh, but I, we had Kwame Nkrumah as the president of the country. We were in independence mode. Uh, that was three years after independence in the 60s. I uh, remember we had almost everything going Uh, in terms of education was free, health was free, but that is not the important thing. Uh, We're enjoying a new lease of life as a people of an independent country, and um, I joined what uh, Kwa Min established what we call the Young Pioneers, and most people have had the you know, misfortune of vilifying the Young Pioneer Movement because they did not understand what it meant. Rami Krumo wanted these youth groups to just have a new set of thinking, a new set of mindsets for for an independent republic. And here we were, we had been colonized all these years, all our textbooks were by foreigners, everything was foreign, I studied um, history, but all my history was British history, Canadian history, American history. So Kwame Nkrumah established the Young Pioneer Movement to have the opportunity outside of classroom to study other things. So that's where we learned a discipline, love of country, the search for excellence in what you're doing, and uh, how you should be proud of your culture. And then we had. Other classes in current affairs, which pinned us to what was happening in other parts of Africa, the liberation movements. So, at tender age, we knew about Samora Machel. We knew about the freedom fighters in Angola, in Mozambique, in Zimbabwe. In Zimb- so we understood issues from that point of view. So. When it was overthrown in 1966, uh, for us in the Young Pioneer Movement, it was a big loss because governments uh, banned the Young Pioneer Movement. They, they criminalized it. It was like they created the impression that this was a, you know, a communist tool to, uh, to get children to become brainwashed. And of course, brainwashed meaning what? To know about our continent, to know about our culture, to know about our people. To learn more about ourselves, that was what was missing. But anyway, I went through it in the sixth form in the mid-60s, then I entered the University of Ghana, where again, some of the students were also in the young pioneer movement. Some were banned, some were rusticated, some had been asked to go home because they were, you know, Nkrumahe supporters, a terrible time. Uh, I, I went through my first degree. I liked languages, so I studied French. I've studied, French was compulsory in a uh, number of schools because we were surrounded by French-speaking countries. And then of course I studied Swahili because I wanted to do an African language. And um, when I graduated, my headmaster of my high school invited two of us, you know, past students to go and teach. So I went back to Addisada College in Cape Coast to teach. And uh, there I also created the youth forum where I also taught them what I had been taught in the Young Pioneer days. I thought we should continue with some of the great things that we were studying. And it's it's worked out because most of my students, I taught there for two years, most of my students are now very Pan-Africanist in thinking. And I'm proud of that. They keep mentioning it in in deliberations. So I went to work for a while, went back to school to do my graduate studies in journalism communication, and then went back again to school to do my master's uh, MPhil in African studies. Otherwise, school time was exciting. The coupons overthrown. Everything was turned upside down. The government um, set up a commission that directed that all the books and uh, anything connected with Kwame Nkrumah had to be brought out and burnt. I think that was the biggest uh, shame that Ghana displayed at the time. I mean, it's... But of course, some of us who believe that Nkrumah never dies uh, believe that the thoughts that he had left behind, and he had written more than 23 books, so you could easily go back and refer to some of them, even though they were banned. So uh, we had a reverse of what Kwame Nkrumah had done, you know, in our own eyes, and then we we continued from there. Uh, you took an interest in
1: journalism, and uh, you took on that role of editor for the Daily Graphic, which is the highest circulating newspaper in Ghana. Um, so I was just wondering, what drew you
2: to journalism initially? Yes, I you know, in school, I was I was a writer. I mean, I I was. I was writing poems. I was editor of our high school newsletter. I became editor of our high school annual magazine. And I saw that that was my calling. I wanted to record everything that was going on. And so journalism just flew in. And so I started contributing to the daily graphic even long before I became editor. I was a columnist. And I enjoyed writing and to get my articles published. And of course. That's what took me to the Graduate School of Journalism and Communication, graduate school. So when I finished, I did some work in public relations, but at the same time, uh, Ghana Broadcasting Corporation was using me for us to host a number of programs on radio and then later on television. So I became a part-time broadcaster at the time. So journalism was in my vein, more or less. So... um, I was not surprised when I was appointed Daily Graphic editor, and I I enjoy being an editor. Yeah, it was an expression of what I have always wanted to do, and this newspaper was the biggest, as you said. Everybody read it throughout the country every day, and it gave me the opportunity to to now get a wider view of world affairs. Mm-hmm. So Kojo, you experienced
1: continued success in journalism, leading to an appointment as director of the Ghana Institute of Journalism, right there. And then later on, uh, you established your very own institution in the African University College of Communications, which is also very impressive. How did you manage to secure such a prominent role first at the G.I.J.? And did this role in any way influence the founding of your
2: own institution later on? Let me say quickly that, um, yet I told you before, journalism was in my path. But beyond that, I had also been involved in cultural activities. Even before I went to Cape Coast, I had become a member of the Pan-African Historical Theatre Festival. Later, I became the chairman of the Pan-African Historical Theatre Festival, which was... Um, uh, festival created by you know a foremost um, woman writer a c Sutherland Adi uh, and which was accepted by government to be a festival of arts and culture which was bringing together people of african descent and I must say that also helped to uh, influence my future because this was the festival that every two years brought cultural activists from all over the world, particularly from the Black communities in various parts of the world. And for seven days, uh, joining together, exhibiting what they had, people giving lectures, we have performances, exhibitions and concerts all over the place. So I moved from becoming chairman of the Publicity Committee to become the chairman of the International Board of Panifest. And this was in 1997 when I became chairman, and it continued. Even while I was in government, I was still chairman because it was an NGO. So the Ghana Institute of Journalism was established by Kwame Nkrumah in 1958 to build a core of journalists, not only for Ghana, but for the whole of Africa, because there was none at the time, it was the institute that was training a lot of journalists from all over the continents. We had a lot of students from Nigeria, West Coast, and then, of course, from the countries that were going through the liberation movements. So I had students from Namibia, from Botswana, from South Africa, from Zimbabwe, all coming to GIJ. So Again, it broadened my Pan-Africanist thinking and scope. And I said to myself, this was the opportunity when I quit government to now go on from Ghana Institute of Journalism Mm -hmm. to establish my own university and find how we could communicate ourselves better as Africans. I had been in the Ghana Institute of Journalism for close to 10 years. And I, of course, I knew how to run an institution like that. But more important, I wanted at a higher level, a university where Africana studies will be paramount. So students, whatever they wanted to study, whether it was public relations or journalism or marketing or you know, whatever angle they wanted, to, they also had to have a great infusion of Pan-African studies. That was the difference. And we still make the difference in Ghana. We are the only university where students don't study African studies only the first year, but they continue to study. It's the same Pan-African spirit, if I should say so, that made me establish the African University College of Communications, which will be 20 years this year. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Well, let me let me talk about Rawlings, um, because in 1979, my wife, who is uh, Iranian-born, um, left Iran in 1979, and she was trying to get away from one revolution in Iran, and found herself stuck in another revolution in Ghana. <laughs> and that was when Rawlings took over uh, by military force um, in Ghana. He became a, a revolutionary and um, also a military officer, of course, in and a politician, and and Ghana's first president. Now, he was very charismatic, as you know, and and I think he became a minister of state in his cabinet as well. So what was it like
2: to work with Jerry Rawlings? Yeah, let, let me start by saying that Rawlings came in at the time that we had had a series of changes of government. After Kwame Nkrumah, we had close to 13 years of military regime by superior military officers. It is significant to know that all those who took over after Kwame Nkrumah were generals and top generals in the army. But things were not changing. I know from from it was just like replacing one set of senior military officers with another. Now Rawlings, he he said when he came in that this is a revolution of junior officers. So for the first time, we had captains and lieutenants leading a revolution and asking all the generals to go home and rest. (laughs) So the youth loved it because they were not seeing any changes after Nkrumah. And it became very popular with warrant officers and the junior ranks. The junior ranks thought that they had always been used by the senior generals. So Rawlings was upsetting the system because he, he mutinied on May 15th to get the voice of ordinary people in government. That was what brought him in. So he, he got quite popular when he was being tried in Burma camp. And of course, as you said, his charisma carried him and. People stopped what they were doing to listen to him, to follow him. And when he eventually came on 31st of December, 1981, um, it was popular because the civilian government that came in between for a couple of days or months could not really find their feet. They, they, They were confused because here was Rawlings. He did not retire from the army and had been so popular, he went back to the ranks and was in the military camp and made the government very unpopular. But of course, they dismissed him and it didn't take long for him to come back. (laughs) So there was a popular, uh, you know, the people wanted a change. They didn't want the military system, the military government, they also did not want a Western-style system, that did not give them a voice in what was going on. And during the period of Rawlings, i, I looking back, i say that they're trying to figure out a way in which we could have a new governance system that would bring everybody into decision-making. So one of the first things he did is to set up a committee to decentralize decision-making. So all the districts had to have a district assembly. And within the communities, we had defense committees. And these were like the popular voices of the people to be the eyes and ears of the revolution in the various communities. Some aspects were very positive. Others, of course, people you know, exceeded their boundaries and so on, but I thought there were at that time, and I think so too, that it was necessary for us to just find our own way of of governing ourselves. So I joined Rawlings the second coming when there had been an election. And let me say this, before the elections, Ghanaians went through a referendum. The referendum was this, what system of government would you like? military, two-party system, multi-party system, or any other. A committee went around the country and sought views from various people. And of course the verdict came back, we want a multi-party system. So I joined that government, first in the information ministry, and then I went back into the regions to become a regional minister. It's like a governor in this part of the world first in Central Region and then in Ashanti Region, it was quite an experience uh, going through a period where people were searching for a better way of running their own affairs, if I should say so. Very transitional
3: moment. Indeed. Indeed. Mm-hmm. A great legacy, I think. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about your book entitled The Trial of J.J. Rollins. First of all, what was that book all about? <laughs> you can give us a hint. And, uh, and how was it received in Ghana? Because I know there was lots of different positions on Rawlings, uh, even in Ghana, uh, and the rest of Africa too. Uh, so how was it, was it received in Ghana?
2: How was it received
3: in the rest of, of uh, Africa?
2: Yeah, right. Uh, the book came out in 1986. Rawlings was very popular. It was first published by Ghana Publishing Corporation, and I must say that it's one book that sold more than 5,000 copies in a year in Ghana. It was popular, and uh, that's why a few years back we had to do the second edition because there was none on the market. So I called it the trial because Rawlings was given a military trial Uh, after he mutinied on May the 15th, uh, 1979. Now, it was at that trial that the military officers wanted to know why he mutinied. And he came out to say that all the senior military officers who had been in power had joined up with the civilians to loot the country, to rob the country, to corrupt and all that. And this was being covered by the Daily Graphic. So people got to know, who is this guy (laughs) who is saying, leave my men alone? I I take all the responsibility because I, I let them because I'm convinced that the hungry man must have a say in governance. And so when he handed over power, I saw the opportunity to get close to him to interview him. And he granted me the interview a very rare opportunity so i got him i got his wife and he led me to some of his close friends who took part in the mutiny and and the revolution and i thought this was a perfect book <laughs> perfect material for a book so in terms of content nobody has anything to say about the content <laughs> because it's, it's just a narration of the, the real thing. I mean, people didn't like Rollins for one reason or the other later, but it, it it showed how popular the book, you know, became so... It was just an account, a narration of what... And incidentally, at the time that uh, rollins uh, and his team were in power for 112 days, we also had an election. So... During that period, I also recorded what the incoming politicians were saying, the kind of promises they were making and the kind of manifestos they were, you know, releasing. And some were even funny because they they were like saying the same things for which people uh, had not performed, for which reason Rawlings had come to power and so on. But anyway, you know, as as a journalist, I, I recorded everything and that's what the book uh, is about and uh uh before Rollins died we, we had a second edition which also sold it is still selling because now so many views about Rollins are you know shaping up in Ghana uh he's not in power, was he relevant was he not relevant what he did he who now those who didn't even like him now I want to go back to the book and read what exactly happened <laughs> you know. So, you know, I'm just uh, amused by the way people react to Rawlings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know he
3: he is a lightning rod for for a lot of people. Um, Yes. Either either good or bad, but (laughs) he's definitely a a charismatic lightning rod. Um, Now, you you are without doubt one of the leading advocates of Pan-Africanism. Uh, in, in, not just in Ghana, but around the world. Uh, I know this from firsthand, having to work with you. You are a tireless advocate for Pan-Africanism. Could you give our listeners your take on what Pan-Africanism is? Because you know some people aren't quite sure what this term means, and it has a particular connotation. Could you explain that to us? And also, why is Pan-Africanism so dear to you? in your profession and also in your you know, post-political
2: life. Um, why is this so so important for you? Uh, good question. Um, I've given you a gist of my background growing up in the Nkrumah regime, uh, being a young pioneer. I started thinking Pan-Africanist long ago in high school. My first poem was on Samora and. So I got in, into the Pan-Africanist mode and I also had the opportunity of uh, meeting uh, people who came to Ghana to work with Kwame Nkrumah, although not in person, but WB Du Bois was in Ghana, George Padmore was in Ghana, um, we had uh, Dr. Lee, a whole lot of uh, you know, the came back to Ghana from the West Indies, from North America, from Europe, and so that community uh, was very influential in my in my in my growth. And then we we studied Kwame Nkrumah's templates of wanting Africa to be united, which for us, uh, for some of us, was the best thing to do. I mean, Ghana as a country, no matter what anybody says about Ghana, I still think that if it is not united with the rest of Africa, we cannot make it. And it's so with every other African country. I saw meetings of Organization of African Union twice in Ghana discussing how we should form a united government of Africa. Of course, we were caught in the throes of the Cold War. So some of the countries were influenced by their masters, and they were saying, Kwame Nkrumah is too ambitious, he wants to be the president of Africa, so what? you know? So some of them um, let Kwame Nkrumah down in 1965, but the template is there. So, and of course, we we ended up with the Ghana, Guinea, Mali Union, which was to be the nucleus of the formation of a United States of Africa. Those who did not want us united, uh, jubilated when Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown because nobody took up the mantle of uh, leading the unification of Africa. But it was still an ideal for which some of us were very um, committed. So, when in the you know early two thousands, Gaddafi took up the mantle, we were all very happy. You know there were a number of occasions that we all said, "May this one work." But again, even in Ghana in two thousand and nine, if I haven't forgotten, when we had the opportunity again. To lay the uh, the topic on the table, we fumbled because the whole West media was on Gaddafi. He promoted it, and therefore this is what he wants to do with Africa. okay, so African leaders came to Ghana and and threw away the uh, item they took it off the table. It pained some of us because we thought this was a great opportunity now. Gaddafi was coming with some very, um, what I would say, relevant ideas in terms of how do we have our own back? We will back the economy of Africa with our oil. You bring along your cocoa, your gold, your this. Let's build a strong foundation for our own sustainability. I mean, what's wrong with that? But Others did not want that kind of strong Africa uh, because will be in the way of a uh, number of other powers. But irrespective of that, we still have the conviction that uh, a united Africa is the only way forward. I uh, now I'm happy that CARICOM is also talking closer to African Union. It is is more than necessary. But apart from that, because I also dealt in the cultural field with the Panafest, I think that pan- pan-Africanism should not only be seen as a political pain I have traveled, luckily, um, throughout the five continents on, on the globe. Wherever I have been, even in Eastern Europe, in the middle of the then Soviet Union, I met black people, black Soviets, you know, or people of Black descent who are everywhere. I go to India and I meet the cities. They are as Black as I am. I go to Colombia, I meet the Palenqueros. They are as Black as I am. I go to Brazil and I see Blacks still sitting at the back of a church because they are Black. So where are they in this whole so-called global world? And I'm saying, yes, we can have a global world, but where do we belong? And I look around and see a lot of diffidence on the part of some Africans or people of African descent. They do not have a lot of confidence in themselves because the systems they are living under have made them feel very inferior. And they, no matter how how hard they try, some even give up along the line. You come to North America and you read about the number of youths who are in prisons. You have been to museums where people have have been lynched. I was, was, I've been to Alabama and seen in Montgomery, the lynching museum and a whole lot of horrible things. I've read also the history of blacks and, you know, in rebellion in you know, in revolts. And I have a book entitled From Jamestown to Jamestown, which really is an encapsulation of uh, my own story. People coming from Jamestown. Jamestown is in Ghana, but I use it to represent uh, the point of departure of uh, Africans from the continent. And I have looked at the kind of resistance that took place, not only on the boats, but also in various countries where Blacks were were settled. But nobody has told us these stories. And I said, the question is, why do we not know? And we did not know because nobody wanted to tell us. And it was not in our interest to know our history. So in terms of pan-Africanism, I'm not just talking about the political connotation of a united Africa but also a united family. I'm looking at united family of people of African descent, knowing about themselves and knowing themselves and then having the opportunity, where do we meet? Let's create a site of pilgrimage. Let's create a site where we can all go uh, to see ourselves. I have seen museums all over the world and of course, museums normally tell stories, but nowhere has anybody taken the trouble to put all to put the story of people of African descent together. When I went through the African-American National Museum in Washington, DC, I said to myself, yeah, okay, this is the story of Africans in the Northern Hemisphere having arrived, and look at the design. If you look at the design of that museum, it's like a ship, right? So it tells you that it is from the ship. But I'm saying, no, Africa's story does not start with slavery. It's an insult to our dignity. Uh, I I also went to the... um, Bible Museum in Washington where they told you that there was a slave Bible and there were other versions of the Bible that were were used on the slave ships to let them know, listen, you are servants, obey everything that, oh my God. I mean, (laughs) you see um, a number of forces coming together to make the African feel inferior wherever they are. While people are busy in research laboratories and finding solutions to problems. We are spending a lot of our time in churches and praying overnight and that kind of thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying, but I mean, I see that it has affected our lifestyle and poverty is getting a greater part of us. So my theory is that let's get to know ourselves. Let's get to know about the pride of our own civilization. Until recently. Archaeologists were doubting whether ancient Egypt was part of Africa or for that matter, uh, whether, you know, the oldest man was really found in Africa and that kind of thing. Now the Chinese are coming out to say the first Chinese was black. The Indians were saying the first Indian was black. The British are saying, oh, Chetabon was black. (laughs) But we don't need to keep this to ourselves. Let's record them. Let our people know that, yes we had a proud history a proud civilization but we were deliberately not told about them and let's see it may take a, it may take a century whatever it takes for our youth now to be long begin to feel that oh we have a rich history we have a rich civilization let us feel proud of who we are and i believe that it will be one of the greatest contributions to humanity well, you, you really bring up a lot of good points there. You know, there's an old
1: saying that goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think it really helps to capture the spirit behind Pan-Africanism. It's such a great concept. I really do agree with you that it's, it's very necessary. Another point you brought up is how, you know, our history doesn't begin with slavery. This is a misconception that we've been dealing with and something that will really be corrected due largely in part to the project that you've begun working on that I want to start talking about next year. You're currently overseeing an incredibly important generational project, the Pan-African Heritage Museum, which upon completion will showcase the history, culture, and achievements of the Pan-African world as presented by Africans. So something we've never really seen before on a scale like this, Africans telling their history by themselves and not having the history being retold by others to allow for a much more authentic and genuine history to be put forward. And you talked a little bit about, you know, your time spent at the museum in D.C. over there. I was wondering if any of that helped uh inspired the creation of this project or if there was something in particular that you knew at this moment, I need to embark on a project like this. We need to make this museum happen. I was wondering what inspired it ultimately and um, how has its development been progressing thus far?
2: What has inspired this museum has been the my, my knowledge and appreciation of how stories are told in various museums throughout the world. On the continent of Africa itself, beginning from Ghana, we only go through the Cape Coast Castle and Mina Castle and talk about the slavery and all that. And um, I find out that people in Ghana and those who visit Ghana and all those uh, slave castles and so on, that's all they get to know, but they don't know about what happened before them sometimes the impression is created that, oh, it was you Africans who sold your brothers. And people, you know, they they believe in it because they, they do not know what else. And uh, then you go to the African American Museum and it's from slavery. So people who go to the African American Museum in Washington learn about slavery and how we struggled through slavery, the, uh, the Civil War, all the struggles, reconstruction, and so on and so forth. They do not know what happened in Africa to their ancestors. Similarly, and that kind of story that you are seeing in the African reserve museum is not known to Africans. Those who go through the Cape Coast castle, you end up and they say a door of no return. So, a door of no return. Okay, they left. So, we do not even know what happened to them when they left, when they come by, they are strangers, right? And it's part of the problems that uh, most Africans feel encountering people in the diaspora. Uh, how do we look at them? Are they part of us? It's, it's, again, the way people look at, oh, we sold them. So why did we sell them? If that is the, you know, and that's what has been put in our minds. So if they are back, how do we look at them? So what motivated me, is how do we bring the stories together? It's our common story. For us to know that, seriously, we have nothing to quarrel about. We were both miseducated. Kat Woodson talking about miseducation of life. The, the miseducation did not only start in, you know, in North America, Also in Africa, in Africa, we are not in our history books. We don't learn about each other, let alone to learn about other blacks in other parts of the world. I keep saying I passed my advanced level history and I even got a prize for it. But what was it? British history, North American history. Come on. I didn't know about South Africa. I didn't know about East Africa. You know, that kind of thing. So it is this lack of education that propelled me to say, let's have a place where we can now learn about each other and help to know more about ourselves. It goes further then, therefore, to the uh, philosophical foundations of Africans' way of life. We live for each other. We are more human. Ubuntu is not for nothing. Ubuntu, one for other, and all for us. Once we establish this uh, project, there will be other branches that people will be looking at. The academic part, the philosophical part. What is our own sense of creation? How did creation begin? And there are a number of stories from various African countries that we are putting together uh, to say, Oh, the Cameroonians, all the Ashanti's, the people in South Africa, the Zulus, and the, what is their concept of creation? And then, of course, we'll go to our concept of God and all that. It's a whole, it's a whole nest that uh, we are opening up. So, where we are now, we on the ground, we have clear the sites uh, everything is going on well for construction to start any moment from now but what we've done is that we've put together a team that is putting the digital version of the museum up and uh, on the on May the 5th we will launch our digital museum and uh, we will open it up to the world you know so people can go in and out go through the pages, go through the galleries, The the first three galleries we are launching, you know, region of cradle of civilization, Africa, the African civilization, the empires, the kingdoms, arts and crafts of uh, ancient Africa. And then we jump to what you call the contemporary Africa. At the end of August, we will launch the second part, uh, but we've started the process. And, you know,
1: it's it's so important. And I was so happy to hear about the online portion of the museum as well while I was doing research on this project. Because, you know, in, a, in the essence of a pan-African museum, as you mentioned earlier, we are everywhere. And so it wouldn't be effective to have only a brick and mortar setup in Africa because it would stop so many people from being able to access it. So that online portion is super important. And I'm very excited to be able to access it when it does launch. I just wanted to ask you a a last note on that. What does success with regard to this project look like to you? And what are your visions for its future?
2: I would want to see the youth of the world, particularly youth of African descent, to find a new space to learn about themselves. Most people of our age have probably made up our minds, but it's still not too late to go back and relearn. But more important, those who really feel hopeless, they don't know where they come from, they do not know what is their heritage, will be the bigger beneficiaries, they would now learn. Oh, wait a minute. So, why weren't we told? You? My level of success will be measured by the number of youth who are touched by this project. Future generations will build on it. We will have other dimensions. We have technology now. We have an innovation hub. We have a creative hub that is the physical part. We are giving the opportunity for creatives those who write, who do films, who do theater, to now having with all the knowledge that you pick from this uh, five-story building, what do you do with it? And so the future is very wide. We have uh, a portion for African herbal plants, the variety. We've discovered there are more than 10,000 species of herbal plants. So we have a team that is planting as many species as we can get from various parts of Africa on one site so people can go through, learn about what people did with herbs and the spirituality, the relationship between the herbs and spirituality about nature and how people related to nature more closely. So... Three pillars of our project, educate, heal and inspire. We want to educate, heal and inspire all those who go through it. And three very
3: three very important pillars indeed. Now, this is a wonderful uh, discussion. I, I wish we could continue <laughs> even longer, but um, I just want to end off with uh, asking you personal question about who you consider to be the top 10 Pan-Africanists. You you are all about linking the continent with the diaspora, right? Bringing those people together. Uh, We've been separated for so long. Many of us don't even know where we came from. Deliberate attempt by the British and the French and the Portuguese and Spanish and so on to separate us from our our ancestors and and our history. But I think in some ways you're helping to bring those two forces back together, the continental and the diaspora. So who, who would you consider to be top 10 of Pan-Africanists? I know that's a, that's a tough one, but I'd like to hear from you who you consider to be the top 10 Pan-Africanists.
2: Yeah, um, it's, it's a difficult question for me because I look at it from various angles, but let me put it this way. Um, I have done quite a bit of reading and I'm still doing a lot of reading And I'm looking at Marcus Garvey, because of what he stood for and what he did. I'm looking at Blyden, who also came out of West Indies and came through Harlem and ended up in West Africa. I am looking at W. B. Du Bois for his academic work and all that he did, not only with the Pan-Africanist Congresses, but also his uh, work in Ghana. I'm looking at George Padmore, who did a lot of work in Ghana, supporting Kwame Nkrumah to influence a number of African countries uh, to come together. I don't think enough has been written about that aspect of him, his work in Ghana. Of course, Kwame Nkrumah himself. There are others from the French-speaking Congo, the richest portion of the continent. Uh, sadly, uh, Lumumba, a very young leader. Um, East Africa, Jomo Kenyatta, who also came out of the 1945 Congress in Manchester. Um, we had Hastings Banda, who also went down to the south to become the president of Malawi. And this is mainly the politics what about uh, Robinson? Is he called Jack Robinson? He was a singer, but uh, his message was also uh, Pan-Africanist. Um, Bob Marley I have attended a series of lectures on his message of liberation in, in in Jamaica myself at the University of West Indies. There's a lot more that can be learned from his messages. There are many from different angles, but um, I, th- I think I've mentioned about eight of them. <laughs> and the good thing is that they all wrote something that you can put hands on and and read. So they still continue to inspire you. That is most important. They, they, they are not fiction characters. They lived, they acted, and they wrote. And the people have written about them, and they still continue to inspire
3: Well, that's a wonderful way to to end this podcast. And we want to thank you, Honourable Hojo, for being with us today. And thank you also personally for including me in in your projects on Pan-Africanism because the the Pan-African Museum is, uh, as an artist and a a political scientist, I kind of mix uh, those two worlds. And I see a lot of that being reflected in the work that you're doing. So thank you very much for the honour. And um, so we want to thank you again and for, for being with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. And um, thank you for
0: the opportunity. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Pender show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta... Located on Treaty 6 Territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca.